Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT Conference, which is to provide to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we are very excited today to welcome you to the fifth installment of our Pandemic Venture Investment Series, where top entrepreneurs, investors, and business leaders dive deep into the challenges and opportunities arising from the pandemic crisis and discuss breakthrough technologies that are addressing issues ranging from coronavirus prevention and cure to social distancing and food supply. Uh, this series is presented in partnership with Our Crowd, which is a leading global venture investment platform. Today's episode is called Artificial Intelligence, Digital Health's Secret Weapon. And it features Ohad Arazi, the Chief Executive Officer of Zebra Medical Vision, Maya Orlicki, the Vice President of Strategy for Diagnostic Robotics, and Yotam Dreschler, uh, the Chief Executive Officer for BrainQ. And the talk today will be moderated by Our Crowd Cures managing partner, Alan Kamer. If you have any questions for any of our panelists during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And with that, I'll turn it over to Alan for the interview. Thank you very much, John. This is Alan Kamer, managing partner of Our Crowd Cure, Israel's first digital health fund focused exclusively on digital health investments. I'm really excited to have this esteemed group with me today. As John mentioned, we're here to talk about artificial intelligence, digital health's secret weapon. And we have some really prominent companies and prominent people from those companies here to describe their weaponry and how they're approaching the market and how they're disrupting healthcare in a positive way. And how we're going to start is I'm going to turn it over to each of the representatives on the panel uh, to describe themselves, give a little bit of background about who they are, and then a little bit of background about their company. And then we'll go from there. And so let's start with Yotam from BreakU. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Anne, for the intro. My name is Yotam, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of BrainQ. Um, my background is in math, computer science, and cognitive science. I've actually worked for several years at the Boston Consulting Group here with Maya, so I'm, I'm very happy to see her uh, with me again on this panel. And um, since 2016, I'm a co-founder and CEO of BrainQ. BrainQ is developing um, a medical device that aims to reduce disability following stroke and other neural disorders. We do so with a wearable um, um, electromagnetic, treat, uh, electromagnetic uh, treatment, which is frequency tuned. And our novelty lies uh, in the data science way that we ent um, retrieve the frequencies for the treatment. Uh, and this is where the AI uh, comes in for us. Um, that's in a very short. Thanks, Yotam. Maya, tell us about yourself and diagnostic robotics. Sure. Thank you so much, Alan, for the introduction. So hi, everyone. Very happy to be here. I'm Maya Orlicki. I'm the VP Strategy and Operations of Diagnostic Robotics. Uh, my background is uh, biotechnology and biomedical engineering. 
Uh, I spent a few years, as Yuta mentioned, at BCG, uh, some time at FinTech, uh, TravelTech, and then uh, and then back to the digital space, a uh, digital health space. And what we're doing here at Diagnostic Robotics is we're developing uh, medical-grade AI products for predicting both uh, patient medical conditions and guiding patients through their most appropriate medical journey. Um, our system was built using databases of tens of millions of EMRs, medical records, as well as tens of billions of claims data. Uh, and we support both healthcare providers, payers, and employers by creating seamless data-driven interactions, automate and optimize the patient's journey through AI. Super. I can't wait to, to get into this. Ohad from Zebra Medical. Tell us about yourself and what Zebra Medical does. Hello, everyone. My name is Zohar Arazi. I have the privilege of serving as the Chief Executive Officer of Zebra Medical Vision. I've been in the medical imaging and health IT space for the past 14 years. I'm absolutely passionate about transforming healthcare with AI and, and medical imaging. Our company, Zebra Medical, was founded in 2014. And really, since then, we've been on a mission to, to transform patient care by teaching computers to automatically read and diagnose medical imaging studies. I'm sure you know medical imaging is already established as one of the most critical and influential domains in healthcare. Over 3.6 billion exams are taken across the globe every year, dealing with almost every type of medical condition. And the challenge with that is with the continuous growth in medical imaging volumes and complexity, we're quickly reaching the human limit for effective interpretation of these images. So at ZebraMed, we're looking to empower healthcare providers to manage this ever-increasing workload without compromising quality of care through the use of AI and machine learning. I think what's really unique about our approach is that we're the first company to use imaging AI to take on the challenge of population health, which is core to the triple aim framework and to value-based healthcare at large. And our platform is proven to help assess and stratify risks for guiding clinical decisions, for interventions, for reimbursements. And most importantly, we're using images that have already been taken. You can imagine that dealing with population health has become even more critical since the outbreak of COVID as the entire healthcare system has been really required to develop you know, tunnel vision to deal with you know, only with what matters most. And as a result, many conditions that are not acute are not getting diagnosed or treated. And I, I kind of liken it to shining a flashlight in a dark room. You can see what's in the spotlight, but you're missing things around the edges. And that's a very significant role that we'll talk about today that I think AI can play. So thank you all of you. I'm gonna jump in and keep it with you, Ohad. Um, you know, we talk, the, the panel is titled AI Digital Health Secret Weapon. Um, what's so special about your AI? What makes your AI really stand out and, and how does it make an impact? First of all, you know, we're looking to complement what radiologists do. When this industry broke out, there was a lot of conversation around, will AI replace radiologists? And, you know, I always like to say, AI will not replace radiologists. Radiologists that use AI will replace radiologists that don't. And the reason for that is, is you know, that the math is pretty simple, right? With, with this exploding volume and growth and complexity, if you just do very basic math, one radiologist on average reads 50 CT studies a day. Each study has at least 500 images. That's 25,000 images per day, which means that the radiologist spends roughly 1.2 seconds reviewing every image. So RAI solutions help radiologists by automating the interpretation of medical images for certain types of conditions. And the way that it works very simply is, is we receive a copy of all the scans that are taken at a particular hospital and our software reviews the images and provides an initial diagnosis 
even before the radiologist has ever looked at the exam. And I think that complementary approach, the one that's really deeply in, in, embedded and truly seamless with a clinician's workflow is the way to go. Because from my experience in health IT, it's as much a technology challenge as a change management challenge, right? And, and winning over the hearts and minds of our users, helping them bring AI and technology to standard of care, to the point of care, is often tied to really nailing the workflow and making it seamless for them to consume. And that's really one of the differentiators we put forward with Zebra Medical. Thanks, Ohad. Now, now, Maya, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your AI and how is it used uh, with physicians? How is it used in the field and in the real world? Sure, happy to. So I think our competitive advantage really relies on the fact that we have a very strong data science capability, but it's also coupled with a very strong in-house team of clinicians. So from a data science perspective, we've really built our models based on tens billion of billions of data points uh, in order to get the most uh, accurate predictions and improving our models at all time. In addition to that, we've also partnered with some of the, the world's leading medical institutions in order to make sure that we are really clinically validating our results. And we've started our work actually in the emergency department where we think we, we were able to get the most clinical uh, and rich data from a medical perspective. That's great. And in terms of how that medical science, that medical practice, that knowledge base that you have in-house comes into play in the product. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails? Definitely. So our work is essentially optimizing the user journey and providing insights, both a decision support system for the physicians and a medical setting navigation for the patients. So that's sort of one part where it really comes into play. And the other is all our work around population health management, where based on the data, we provide better risk certification and interventions matching for different chronic populations. Thank you. So, Yotam, you know, you talked about how uh, your company is working with a specific patient subset and group. And tell us a little bit about what is, first of all, electromagnetic field therapy. Right. And how um, can AI be applied to that? Right. So, BrainQ is targeting uh, the neuro disorders world and at unmet need. Stroke, our leading indication, um, affects 15 million patients every single year. It's the number one cause of long-term disability. We are a therapy company, and um, um, maybe unlike Oad and Maya, um, that use AI for diagnostics, which is, I would say, 95, 98% of um, usage of AI in the world is used for diagnostics. BrainQ is a therapeutic company. We use AI in order to distill biological insight that could not have been... Uh, um, shown or revealed otherwise. Uh, it's often a matter of trust. So what is mentioned before that it's a question about uh, would radiologists be replaced by AI, yes or not? And I believe that we are getting more and more trust uh, with AI. And BrainQ has taken it one step further. We have used AI in order to distill therapeutic insight from electrophysiology patterns, from br uh, patient brainwaves compared to healthy individuals' brainwaves to find this kind of... Um, um, uh, anomaly in patterns and, and use it to direct 
the electromagnetic field towards the right systems. To do so, we have uh, accumulated a massive amount of electrophysiology data, which we had to tailor ourselves, because this is virtually a non-existent data. Um, and um, collecting this data in, in a very delicate way allowed us then to use what's called explanatory machine learning tools. Um, so without going through all the details, uh, the first step is very similar to what uh, typical machine learning does. We use a supervised learning. We try to classify between diff different states. So it can be a patient that does a grip versus a patient that does a non-grip. And then we ask the algorithm, why did you make something become a grip? Why do you think it is a grip? What, what features made you believe it is a grip? So we don't care about the classification. We care about the rationale behind the classification. And based on this rationale, we are able to inform then our treatment. So that, that's very interesting. So it's a high touch point with patients. You work closely. You need to understand what's going on in each specific patient in order to, to make sure you can treat them appropriately. So how has your business been impacted during the pandemic? How has that um, really um, impacted your ability to connect with patients, to do research, to really um, progress as a business? Is it addressed to me? Yes, please. please okay. Um, so I think that the first impact is, it's not an AI impact. It's, it's actually an interpersonal impact. Um, as a CEO of a company, when the COVID-19 uh, started, um, everything, the world is, is shaken. And, 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 and I needed to make sure that our speedboat um, you know, is making it through the, uh, this storm. And it wasn't an easy one, to be honest. So I had clinical trials running in uh, US and Asia. Um, and the first thing that happened and we realized is going to happen very soon is a pause or a slowdown of all clinical trials. For a life science company, this is a very problematic situation. Second is um, you have your entire team um, on their lockdown here in Israel and also abroad. Um, and, 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 and a lot of unclarity from you know, your stakeholders and so forth. So I think the first thing to realize this is... Um, um, a lot about communication, a lot about um, making sure you are making the right judgment and the right calls in a, uh, in a relatively short time in, a, in, in very critical days. Once we did uh, get a good grasp of where we stand and how to take it forward, we also realized where the opportunities are, and they are there. So in our case, for example, BrainQ has developed its treatment for quite a while already with the notion of what's called remote therapy. So our, the, the patients that we treat actually have a very fragmented treatment pathway. A stroke patient in the U.S. spends about four days in acute hospital, and then often he goes to a rehab center, and he spends there another two weeks, and then he goes home, um, and, and so forth and so on. Several locations, several doctors, one patient. Every single treatment that ever tried to kind of ca capture it by, you know, taking the patient, dragging him back and forth to hospital, always failed. We have had this notion for a while in our, uh, in our ad, and we have been working on this IoT um, medical device. Again, therapeutic medical device. Um, very easy to say when it comes to diagnostics, but not, not heard of when it comes to therapeutics. And, and, and regulators and, and, and clinical sites were actually very cautious of you know, making this 
move with us. They said, let's try it in clinic and then let's realize, you know, if it works and then we're going to go on. All of a sudden, now that the COVID uh, is out, it's no longer a question of um, feasibility of treatment. It's a matter of safety of the patient. Stroke patients are a risk group to, um, to COVID as well as any other neuro, neuro disorder out there. They cannot be treated in hospitals. So having a remote therapy solution actually helps them um, engage into a treatment. So it's becoming an imminent need. Being able to leverage on this opportunity, accelerating the development of this product and engaging with the right regulatory bodies is something that we have managed to do in a very short time. That's amazing. That's amazing. And certainly um, good to hear that the, the remote capabilities are being accelerated by regulators. Um, Ohad, over to you. Um, you know, the data about hospitals and some of their elective procedures, some of the other parts of their business that are non-COVID related are, are staggering in the sense that they're down significantly as much as 60, 70 percent in terms of activities in some cases. How has that impacted you, Ohad, and the Zebra team in terms of the market's ability to to work with you and to work with your products? Yeah, much like your Tom, you know, we had to overcome initial challenges of kind of figuring out how to work in the new world, right? How to engage with hospitals, how to create mindshare for them. You know, they're very, very focused on one thing. Um, and so big learning exercise, I think, for our team culturally and, and professionally. But but maybe to, to double click on what you talked on, Alan, is, is the fact that especially as COVID broke out, you know, many uh, elective procedures were postponed or canceled. And you know, we tend to think of elective procedures as something that's not needed. When I mean elective procedures, I mean mammography screening. I mean cancer screening that is deferred, right? So very, very substantial uh, procedure types were, were deferred. And, and, and that really created a kind of a, a peak and valley environment where we've seen now, especially across the US, where volume substantially dropped, massive pent up amount, uh, pent up demand got built up. And then that had to be dealt with in a very short time frame. And to me, that really creates um, a very robust opportunity for AI to help normalize that curve because of what I talked about up front of, you know, the increased volume and complexity that radiology has to deal with. Let's take the example of mammography. You know, with the outbreak of coronavirus, annual mammography tests during lockdown were postponed or canceled. Uh, I saw an amazing data point that every day from mid-March to mid-May, an average of 94,000 mammograms were deferred daily in the U.S. alone. That means that over that period, almost 6 million patients experienced increasing anxiety to be tested and ran the risk of missing early detection uh, as part of their annual screening during that period. And, and AI can solve that. And that same phenomenon is happening again now with a second wave as the health systems need to refocus on COVID yet again. And, and so I think that the role of AI in being that aid inside the radiology cockpit to help deal with peaks and valleys, with pent up demand that can build all of a sudden and to allow the radiologist to focus at times on what matters most while AI can complete the picture and run routine mammoth scans, can do detection of chronic conditions and stratify the risk for them. I believe that's been a very important lesson and, and I really encourage the health system and we're trying to promote this with our vision to make sure that the new normal is, is truly a different one, that, that the role of technology as an aid inside a clinical setting really does become different due to this compelling event that we're all experiencing. And so does that mean that um, Ohad, the, the utilization of AI and radiology will likely 
um, build on this momentum and that providers who historically may have been um, resistant or reluctant to change rapidly now as they've gotten used to the the new world order and gotten an understanding that the spike in demand may be me coming in the short while post covid that um, it will be more routine in their use of AI and the integration of tools into uh, packs or into other places uh, in their workflow than they have been historically. I certainly believe so. I, I think it's it's causing health systems to retool and they're needing to retool financially because their volume, their inpatient volume has grown, which is lower margin business. So their financial, the bottom lines are strapped, right? So that in of itself is causing change. The workflow has changed. The, the peaks and valleys have changed. I think a good example of that is actually the role that AI Imaging AI has played with COVID specifically because when, when COVID first broke out, you know, most of the efforts to fight the pandemic were on testing, were on, you know, on, on vaccinations or building immunity for it. There was very little to help the health system understand the potential for disease progression in patients and, and really, therefore, how to create the best care plan. We know that one of the greatest drivers of coronavirus related mortality early in the early days was the inability to detect early potential severe cases and provide critical care to those that needed it most. So healthcare, provided, healthcare providers need automated tools to support triage and to determine how to best allocate ER capacity, ICU beds, ventilators, based on disease progression. And, and so the, the very first wave you know, that, that challenged Italy or New York City truly served as a cautionary tale where frontline workers had to make very difficult decisions on who they think had the greatest need to receive treatment. And, and then AI started to come in to play a role there by analyzing CT scans. And our solution for this automatically detects and quantifies suspected COVID-19 findings, but, but more importantly, it provides a, a lung burden score, which really calculates the percentage of the affected lung volume and enables better prediction of the trajectory of the patient with COVID as a decision support for the allocation of you know, valuable ER or ICU resources. So, so to me, that's an example where uh, a new need, which was understanding progression, not necessarily understanding classification, drove adoption behavior that we hadn't seen before. And to your point, I think that that new normal is going to look a little different in, in terms of the role that AI plays now pre and post pandemic. Thanks, Ohad. Maya, talk to us about the emergency rooms and talk to us about how what you're seeing in the market, what you're hearing, and how that's impacted diagnostic robotics? Yeah, definitely. So, so I think we're seeing um, a lot of different changes, right? COVID had made a lot of impact on the entire healthcare space. I think uh, on the one hand, it really was a huge accelerator for digital healthcare space uh, and really brought adoption of phenomena that we thought would take decades in a matter of a month, right? We're seeing uh, telehealth is booming and we're seeing the really the need for remote monitoring. Um, so, so I think that's sort of one thing that had a really huge impact for us, whereas the, the having the ability to really leverage AI in order to have the physicians focus only on what's most important, right? Only the 
life-saving treatments, uh, the really um, the core of the physician's work. Uh, I think that became very clear, right? Whereas before it seemed as maybe an added value, now it really became an, a necessity with the situation and everything that's been going on with the physicians. And we were seeing that both in the emergency department as well, right? Uh, in the emergency department, optimizing uh, the, the user's flow, making sure we identify those high-risk patients and, and optimize the process was really just um, had a, a much bigger impact at this point. Another thing that we were seeing, so I think, you know, with the pandemic, uh, there was an, an overall uh, evolution and we're seeing sort of the market react. So in the beginning, uh, everyone was really interested in, in um, digital health with the focus on COVID, right? And we've collaborated uh, initially with the Ministry of Health here in Israel and with several states in the U.S. and in India to really try and provide risk assessment for uh, COVID. However, as it progressed, we really understood that what's, what's more important is thinking about the broader picture, looking at population health management, at the chronic uh, populations, whereas you really need to find a solution to this new normal and make sure that they're monitored as well. And so with these macro drivers you identified, Maya, how does that change or alter your business plan moving forward? Do you have I think new, honestly, yeah. Sorry, I was going to add, do you have new parameters of success? Do you have new focus areas? Do you expect things will return to normal post-vaccine? Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, I think that's the million-dollar question, right? Uh, no one really knows what's going to be the new normal, but I think it will definitely not be as it was before. I think we, we don't see uh, anywhere of this going back. Uh, the the need for sort of digital elements and remote monitoring is going to increase. Uh, and I think we don't know if it's going to be exactly where we're at right now, but it's definitely going to increase dramatically from where it was pre-COVID, right? Uh, and so for us, what we're seeing is just, you know, uh, everything is expedited in a sense, right? Uh, and... Um, and some of the sort of chronic conditions we're seeing uh, an increase in those populations, right? So in our population health management, we're looking at behavioral health, which is really important right now, and CHF and additional patients, which are also in risk for COVID. So that has another sort of parameter, which has an impact, and it just increased the need and the demand for that such monitoring. Great. That's that's really interesting. And, and Yotam, on... The clinical trials side, you, know, yeah. you mentioned that you had to pause some trials as a result of COVID. You mentioned uh, some of the regulators' willingness to do some remote right. care. What changes uh, in a post-COVID world for all of you? Right. So COVID did change our plan. Um, and, and honestly, I wouldn't expect this uh, change in the, in, in, in the plot originally. So we had two um, indications we were running in parallel. One was on chronic um, tetraplegic spinal cord injury uh, population. And, uh, and the other one was on subacute um, ischemic stroke patients. And if you were to ask me a year ago, what is my first indication to market? I, I actually believe I'm going to do um, well on both. But I, my, my uh, entire plan was developed based on the notion that spinal cord most likely going to make it faster to market. It's a niche market. Um, um, 
it's a much kind of a slimmer penetration and then, you know, go to the mass market of stroke. And, and this was my plan to the board. This was my um, um, presentation, you know, the pitch deck uh, was there. And uh, what happened is that uh, spinal cord injury uh, for chronic patients is an elective procedure, as Oad has mentioned before. Again, these are some of the most severe patients out there. They are paralyzed from their neck and down. Do they need help? They definitely need help. But when it comes to um, hospitals' ability to treat them, even enroll them into a, a clinical trial right now, it just wasn't there. So things did slow down. And whenever there was um, kind of a slowdown in numbers of um, COVIDs in, in different states, okay, we had some more recruitment. And then, you know, it, it, it went down again. So things did slow down on, on that process. At the same time, um, we actually managed to complete our uh, stroke study um, and not just that, kind of get a two, three years jump because our plan was to have um, a pivotal study in the U.S. Uh, based on um, a clinic um, product just as a way to get to our ultimate product, the one that could, could have a remote uh, therapy. And all of a sudden, I don't need it anymore. So I'm, uh, our, our plans have now changed to already engage with this uh, remote therapeutics um, setting. And um, the, the doctors we work with, the sites, um, and also the um, regulators are much more adapted to it. And we have already been experiencing this kind of a move to remote therapeutics in the US, um, and it turns out highly successful. Again, things that uh, were inconceivable just, I don't know, a few months ago. Um, during the COVID, we have taken our uh, spinal cord injury patients and moved them on. And, um, and, and regardless of the efficacy side, which I'm, I'm, I cannot discuss at, at that point, but patients were thrilled. They don't want to go back to clinic to receive the same treatment. Who wants to go on an ambulance back and forth three times a week if you can get, receive the same treatment at home? So, so these are, again, concepts that would have taken uh, several years to mature and, and, and now did mature. I do want to make one more point. I think one of the... One of the challenges for a startup company uh, in times of, in crazy times like COVID is also to make sure you, you don't defocus. And you, you do, um, um, you know, you, you adhere to your uh, core values and, and you make sure you, you stick to it because COVID will eventually, ultimately, in a matter of months, maybe a year, maybe two, but we will, we will overcome it most likely. And the, and the startups... I mean, many of the startups I see around me and also us, um, you know, were established for a reason. And we develop often unmet needs. Uh, uh, we develop therapies for unmet needs or diagnostics for unmet needs. Going, uh, spreading around, you know, and, and, and placing too many times the COVID word in our uh, value proposition also has the risk of losing the true value we're after. So we do have to acknowledge that COVID, we do have to take into account, you know, how do we speak to our stakeholders in times of COVID? But we also have to remember, right, that, that whatever we target out there, that most likely is still going to be a need. And, and, and not just that, it's most likely where we believe we have uh, the best chances in order to, uh, I would say, differentiate ourselves and, and, and maintain our competitive advantage. So for me, this was also an important lesson, you know, not to go and um, develop my own uh, COVID vaccine uh, as well. 
Right. <laughs> well, there's certainly uh, some positive news on the vaccine side, so it's it's good that you've you've stayed focused on on what's important. And it's really interesting to hear how uh, you see an evolution in terms of the patients and in terms of what they want and how that's going to impact um, your strategy and your ability to progress um, post COVID. Ohad, let me hear from you in, in terms of what you're projecting and forecasting, you know, as uh, vaccinations um, start to spread, hopefully in 2021, and the market um, begins to uh, get back to um, a potentially a new normal, as Maya said. But tell me what you're thinking from a zebra perspective. You know, my, my view, Alan, is that this will drive a significant push, primarily in the U.S., from a fee-for-service model to a population health-based model or a, or, a, or a value-based model. Because one of the things that COVID really underscored is that, you know, the kind of the cost and complexity to care for a patient needs to be viewed in its totality. And in the U.S., historically, you know, in a fee-for-service world, you're often looking at a per-procedure basis, right? And all of a sudden, when you had to deal with very complex comorbidities that are tied to, to COVID or had to deal with a big influx of inpatients, it really stretched the finances of the health system, in particular because of the fact that we noted earlier that the higher margin procedures were deferred. And all of a sudden, the hospitals lost a lot of their top line revenue. They were still doing the same number of procedures, even had more patients in-house, but their, their revenue basis had substantially decreased. And so I think that's part of a broader trend that we're seeing in the U.S. of a move more towards population health. And, and I think it's also a theme in what Maya and Yotam talked about, because population health is often going to lead us towards a, a path where we can have early intervention and that we can really link diagnostics and therapeutics which I think is one of the key things that, that's emerging, you know, from each of the discussions we're having across our, our companies. And, you know, so I, I really think that this is a trend that you know, we as ZebraMed have to understand how to capitalize on. It's been a big part of our strategy, actually, moving from just dealing with acute care situations much more to population health. And maybe I'll, I'll try to, I'll, I'll bring that to light for a moment of, of what that means. You know, if, if you if, 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 if I step off a long international flight, when I fly from Israel to the West Coast of North America, which I often do, if I have chest pain and I've come off a long flight, I'll go to the ER and, and the, you know, the, the physicians will want to rule out pulmonary embolism. So the radiologist will interpret a chest CT and they'll look to either rule out or confirm PE. But you know, what if at the same time that the radiologist is looking at the scan, an AI algorithm can run in the background can identify additional findings that will have significant downstream impact on the patient's overall health. Like, you know, the fact that I might have sub, subtle, subtle vertebral compression fractures, which are a leading indicator for osteoporosis, or I might have a buildup of, uh, of plaque of coronary calcium that is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And so, so the ability for AI to, to stratify the risks and to deal with my end-to-end -end health, even if it's not immediately, you know, high degree of acuity, is I think where healthcare is going at large, and again, principally in the US where it's been much more focused on treatment and less focused on prevention. And again, that's one of the main roles that I think AI can play and, and maybe also diagnostic um, robotics and many other companies that are now you know, looking at diagnostics with a broader lens of, of the complete picture, the complete comorbidities, the risks that this, these patients bear, recognizing that even things that don't manifest right away um, can often have prophylactic treatments that we can deal with preventatively and we can, we can drive better outcomes as a health system 
in this post-COVID environment with you know greater adoption of, of technology and AI. No, that's that's great. And do you see those uh, population health trends uh, emerging in other markets uh, globally in short order? Um, are there are they advanced in certain markets uh, in uh, before the U.S.? What, what's the forecast there? Yeah, there's certainly more advanced in single payer markets. A really good example of that is Clinique Healthcare. Clinique Healthcare already works with us with our both coronary calcium and our, our compression fracture product because it's a payer provider. It holds both ends of the stick, right? It owns the provider and it owns the payer, the overall responsibility for the expense and the accountability for dealing with the outcome for that patient. We see that in many single payer systems. I'd say the UK and Australia, for example, have very progressive bone health programs. And you know, bone health is, is just another disease. It's, it's the most preventable cause of fractures, osteoporosis is. It impacts nearly half of women over the age of 50 and costs $52 billion to treat. And, and so it's, you know, it causes, just in the US, more than 2 million cases of broken bones annually. But it's also highly treatable if detected early. And so if you can increase the detection rates for osteoporotic fractures, then you can get much better outcomes. And single-payer systems have recognized that for years. Um, the, the UK, the NHS is really outstanding in adopting this. They have a network of fracture liaison services, basically bone health clinics that help support in the older population with, uh, with fracture prevention. And that's catching on rapidly in Australia. So certainly single-payer jurisdictions, I think, are further along. But, um, you know, they're still working within the confines of cost saving. I think in the U.S., the shift from volume to value will also change some of the top line projections for the providers because they realize that actually if they're intervening early and owning the end-to-end care for that patient, they can get not only better clinical outcomes, but also better financial outcomes. And those financial drivers, I believe, will drive adoption substantially of population health solutions. That's great. So here's a question that came in from one of our participants, and it's for each of the companies. And Maya, we'll start with you. Uh, The participant wants to know, um, what are specific milestones that you're aiming to achieve, either in terms of revenue or clinical milestones or even AI milestones that need to be reached uh, for sustainable success over the next year or two? Sure. So I think I can respond to each of those uh, sort of fields, right? So I think from a clinical perspective, uh, that's where we've started, right? We've really started with validating our predictions clinically. However, there's always this sort of a specific milestone on a per modal basis uh, to really prove that we have better results, right? And, And I can share an example in the population health space, which is we started with risk certifications to scores. And then from there, we really saw that in order to make an impact, we need to also look at the type of intervention provided by the care management teams, right, in order to really impact the bottom line. And so what we're doing now is we're also incorporating interventions matching for specific populations. So that's just, you know, one um, one example to show how we keep on adding sort of more specific, um, detailed milestones in order to show that we're improving clinically. Uh, with respect to the other components, I think, you know, there's there's always a matter of adoption, which is really key, I think, in our field, right? Uh, and there we have sort of metrics in order to make sure that we're working both with peers and providers, with the care management teams, and with the users themselves, and just to make sure that we are increasing adoption. Great. Yotam? 
Right. So if I have to summarize it to one key milestone in the coming year, then it is our launching our pivotal study, um, the equivalent for phase three for our stroke uh, in the US, um, most likely Europe as well, uh, with some of the top uh, sites out there. Um, this is a very unique study. It, it, so it, it comprises this, um, uh, you know, our um, our therapy that has been already validated in, in previous studies, but but it, it it blends in the remote therapeutics, a very unique setup that I don't think that everybody any anyone has ever um, tried before us uh, on a large scale study uh, for an un, unmet need. So making it right, um, making sure that we, um, we launch it, you know, with the right technology in our hands, with the right design, with the right doctors, um, and it, it's kind of. Um, you know, uh, once in a lifetime opportunity to really make a dramatic change into this world. Um, so kicking it off um, in the right way is the number one milestone for us in the coming year. Great. Ohad. You know, Alan, for us, it's it's really scale. Our company was founded in 2014. We've been in this business for a while. We're, I think, really we're the trendsetters and kind of paved the way for much of the imaging AI industry. And now as, as we continue to mature, our, 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 real, our, our, our focus is scale. I think I shared with you up front that we're, we're on a mission to transform patient care by teaching computers to automatically read and diagnose medical imaging studies at scale. And to us at scale, you know, today we, we have to the order of hundreds of thousands of patients that go through our system every month. And our goal is by 2022 to have millions of patients go through our systems per month. And so we're really looking to build that scale by first you know, continuing to sell directly to providers. Uh, we've also substantially increased our resale network and have really been working on OEMs, meaning embedding our software into assets that are being used by radiologists or by imaging users, like the imaging modalities or the PAC systems, the systems that are used to interpret the exams, because we know that that will drive adoption, that will drive scale. So really for our mission to be meaningful, we need to touch millions of patient lives every month. And that's really what our team is working towards. We measure that metric. We talk about it all the time. We have a dashboard that shows how many lives we're touching on a daily basis. And so we're, we're continuing to galvanize the team around that. And, and that's really our biggest goal in 2021 is to continue to really scale up this company, increase our presence in North America and globally and, and touch more and more patient lives every day. That's terrific. So last question for everyone as we're, we're pushing up against time. Um, it's a general question, but as, as we talked at the outset, this is about AI as uh, being digital health's secret weapon. I'd like to hear from each of you, what needs to happen overall for AI not to be so secret, for patients to feel comfortable, for physicians to feel comfortable, for overall AI to become widely adopted and understood as being beneficial in the delivery of healthcare. And we'll start with you, Maya. So I think one of the things is really around, and, and we've touched on it briefly before, right, but around market education. Uh, so I think, you know, we're working with a very traditional market, and I think it's a gradual process to really understand, first of all, the impact and sort of the goal of AI within this flow. Uh, I think Ohad said it as well, right? We're not trying to replace the physicians. We're trying to supplement them, optimize whatever we can in order to support them so they can really focus on the essence of their job. So I think that's sort of one thing, which it's a gradual process to really 
get the entire healthcare com community to really understand that. And then there is just the, the, the area of, you know, just uh, AI ex explainability, right? Which is really sharing as much of the results as we can in order to have the physicians and the healthcare staff informed and to be able to make the right decisions based on AI, but, but really have the data that they need in order to make the right treatment decision. Great. Yo, Tom. Right. So, as Maya said, and I think um, the overall notion is all about trust. And when, they are, when there are two new partners, you know, um, you don't want to go too fast. You want to take it kind of step by step and, 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 and build up this trust. For me, the partners are, I mean, just to make sure, are technology companies that penetrate um, healthcare system. Um, and there is the healthcare, um, you know, um, stakeholders, whether it is doctors, whether it is the medical centers and so forth. I do believe that this is where you build trust. AI, um, in essence, it's also a buzzword. You know, to some extent, I often believe that we kind of use it too much. I mean, AI is a tool to achieve a goal. And it's a, it's a way to use data science uh, in order to interpret something that you maybe could not have been doing, could not could not done uh, differently. So, you know, when, when you go on AI and you use it for your pitch deck to investors, I think it's, it's very important to realize, I mean, the... Uh, I mean, the differentiations of, of what you have. And by the way, AI, is, AI has been democratized by, by its tools. So almost everybody can do an AI today. So this is not really the differentiation anymore. Um, it's, it's really um, um, something that we use in order to help technology um, solve problems that, uh, in, in a, a more traditional system. So for us, I'm saying two things. A, um, create this trust between uh, startups uh, and, and, and I would say entrepreneurs to this medical system and do it with communication and transparency uh, in, in, in the most profound way. Second, um, maybe, um, you know, consider not to use too much of the word AI, rather focus on the value you can bring um, and, and, and the kind of to tools that you use because some of it is just about, um, I, I mean, it, it's just, so this is this is the downside of, of a buzzword, um, and and thirdly, um, I think that time as it's uh, time is often the most uh, uh, critical factor. And, and time, you know, between when AI was introduced several years ago, I think a lot of time has passed. Um, a lot of these values that we are talking about right now are almost taken for granted. I mean, our, our radiologists today know what AI is. There is no more. It's not scary anymore. Okay, it used to be scary a few years ago. And, and the boundaries are, you know, can just extend and extend. Um, so this is why we kind of use it uh, these days for, um, um, for, explanatory, for explanatory tools, for um, um, therapeutic insight. But, but this is just the very beginning of a journey. Thank you. Ohad. I'd really like to echo what uh, Yotam and, and Maya talked about. I mean, to me, AI is, is kind of still going through its cycle of, of moving from hype to reality. And, and our role collectively as innovators in this space is to move from being experts to being partners. We have to be partners to the health system. AI is a partnership tool 
And, and, and again, to me, the ultimate partner is about also changing our view on AI from the inside out to the outside in. I think historically when it started, it was driven by innovators that had a vision and they were telling the market that vision. And it felt a little bit like a solution looking for a problem. And now when you hear about each of our companies, we're very, very focused on finding solutions that are valuable and, and pain points that the health system has and real needs that when users leverage AI to solve them, they can't live without them. And I think that's our role is to continue to continue to evolve as partners, build that trust, like Yotam said, and really switch our focus from thinking about kind of the, the solution, the, the glitter of AI and what it can do to, to really getting into the trenches and understanding where is pain in the system, where are needs that are unmet by existing technologies, existing workflows, and making sure that we tailor our AI solutions to solve those problems that is really what creates stickiness. That's what creates adoption. And that's what will allow our broader sector, I think, to mature and unlock the promise that it has and, and the value that each of these companies can bring uh, to the world. Well, thanks, Ohad. So Ohad Arazi, CEO of Zebra Medical, with Tom Drexler, CEO of BrainQ, and Maya Orlicki, VP of Strategy and Operations at Diagnostic Robotics. I'd like to thank all of you for your insights and comments and educating us about uh, the market, about AI, what you do, and how you're impacting patients and patient care. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us and remind everyone that the recording uh, and more information is available at the SALT website and hope to uh, see you again sometime soon. Thank you for your time and thank you for participating to our panelists.